Have you ever felt like you're sleepwalking through life? Or that you've been playing supporting actor instead of the lead? You are not alone. Hey, it's Dustin, and you're listening to another episode of The Burleson Box. Today on the program, we're talking with Ozan Verol and his new book, Awaken Your Genius. In the era of mass manipulation, when so many otherwise intelligent people have been seduced by lazy thinking, what must it feel like to act instead of react? To be confident that your beliefs are your own and that you are no longer operating on autopilot. To carve your own path as a leader and creator. To act from your imagination instead of your programming. There's an extraordinary group of people who author their own life. They think and act with genuine independence. They stand out from the crowd because they embody their own shape and color. We call these people geniuses. As if they're another breed, but genius isn't for a special few. It can be cultivated. In his new book, Awaken Your Genius, former rocket scientist and best-selling author Ozan Verol will show you how. Today on the program, we'll discuss how to discard what no longer serves you and discover your first principles, the qualities that make up your genius. You'll learn how to escape your intellectual prisons and generate original insights from your own depths. You'll discover how to look where others don't look and see what others don't see. In other words, you'll learn how to give birth to your genius. I'm so excited to welcome Ozan back to the program on another episode of The Burleson Box. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Dr. Burleson here. You've heard that real estate should be a part of every investor's portfolio, but maybe you're unsure where to start. My good friend and colleague, Dr. David Phelps, leads an investor community that has ditched the traditional Wall Street model for the stability of real estate assets. They are called Freedom Founders, and they do real estate really, really well. David's Freedom Blueprint reveals exactly how much you need to retire. Some of my top clients have done the program. They speak highly of David and his Freedom Blueprint. With the certainty of their passive real estate investments, Freedom Founders members are free to spend more time with family or even leave the practice altogether. David has put together some special resources for my listeners. To access, just text Dustin to 972-203-6960 or Go to freedomfounders.com forward slash Burleson. All right. Welcome, everyone. I'm so honored to have Ozan Verol on the program. Ozan, thanks for being here. Dustin, thanks so much for having me back. Yeah, I should say welcome back, right? We talked about your last book, Think Like a Rocket Scientist, and you've you've upped the ante. Your, your new book is just as good. It's Awaken Your Genius, Escape Conformity, Ignite Creativity, and Become extraordinary. Tell us about what motivated you to write this book. It's been a long time coming. It's an issue that I've been thinking about a lot as I've observed the world and how much this copy and paste culture has become prevalent. We're constantly looking externally for answers. Businesses do the same thing. They look at what their competitors are doing and copying and pasting. And there's so much wisdom inside of each of us. And I wanted to write a book to help people unlock their own originality and unleash their unique talents. And I picked the word genius in the title of the book, Awaken Your Genius, for a very specific purpose because geniuses often used to mean the most intelligent or the most talented. And that's actually not the way that I'm using the term in the book. The way I use the term genius harkens back to a quote from Thelonious Monk. He says, a genius is the one most like himself. So a genius is the one most like themselves. And a genius in the Latin origin of the word means the spirit attended at birth in each and every person. So each of us is like Aladdin and our genie or our genius is bottled up inside of us waiting to be awakened. And so I wrote a book to give people a simple manual to do just that. I love that. Because when I saw the title, I was like, oh, wait, do we have to all go boost our IQs? And, and somehow, is this only for astrophysicists? Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and you very quickly in the book dispel that. And I love that original meaning of the word. It, it really gets to the core of, of what you're covering in the book. You, you say a really neat thing that stuck with me, that thinking for yourself doesn't mean thinking by yourself. How do you want us as readers to kind of approach that topic? Sure. And it's such an important one. Uh, yes. So thinking for yourself does not mean thinking by yourself. 
Meaning, and there's a chapter in the book called Great Minds Don't Think Alike. Often other people become a mirror for us and help us see what we otherwise would have missed. There's so much wisdom inside of each of us. And by engaging with other people, by sharing your ideas with other people, with different perspectives, with different values, they can help you unlock your own insights and share with you perspectives that you otherwise would have missed. And I've observed this in in so many different settings. I used to run a I don't do this anymore, but I used to run a mastermind of C-suite executives from different industries, people who don't normally talk to each other, and we ensure there was no industry overlap. And being in those conversations was just fascinating because here you've got a group of like six, seven brilliant individuals from very different walks of life and the conversations that take place, sort of seeing like one idea that's totally commonplace in one industry becoming breakthrough in another just by virtue of putting these people who don't think alike in a similar room together and and letting them talk to each other. So there's so much value in cultivating your own community of the unlike-minded, like people who don't think like you, but who share your values. So for example, in my own life, one of the things I do in terms of vetting people into my inner circle is asking myself, are these people honest? Are they humble? Uh, are they transparent? Are they going to shame me for you know sharing a contrarian view, or are they going to lean in with curiosity and help me see what I might be missing? Uh, and as long as those values are in place, I look for people who don't think like me simply because I have nothing to learn from someone who thinks exactly as I do, uh, which is why I'm a firm believer that great minds, contrary to popular wisdom, don't actually think alike. Yeah, it's spot on. I love that you, it's very creative. You titled the first section of the book, quote, the death and talk, end quote. And you talk a lot about finding out who we are not. Uh, and I love that because most people listening to this went to a ton of school to learn and learn and learn and learn and learn. And you're proposing we kind of unlearn a little bit. Can you, can we dig into that a little bit more? Sure. We, we are conditioned from a very early age to think like our parents, to think like our teachers, to think like textbook authors, to think like influencers, to think like anyone but ourselves. And so we pick up so much noise and so much conditioning from outer society that actually doesn't belong to us. And we don't bother to examine it, in part because we're too busy, right? We're operating on autopilot, moving from one thing to the next, but in other part, because we just don't realize that that is not us. Like some of the voices that you hear in your head, you know, these voices come up for me from time to time of like, you know, you're not good enough or you can't do this or you can't accomplish that. When you dig in, they're often voices that I picked up from teachers uh, or that I picked up from friends growing up. And unless you actually take the time to examine those layers of conditioning, those layers of thought and figure out, you know, sort of like Marie Kondo style, which ones spark joy and which ones actually align with you and which ones belong to you and which ones don't. You go around just cluttered under all of that, um, just decades of, of, of conditioning. And so the first part of the book is dedicated to just that of like figuring out what doesn't belong to you and letting all of that go so that your inner true self can can emerge. And looking back on my life, I'm I'm more proud of the things that I stopped doing than the things that I actually have done. Uh, because adding is really easy, but subtracting is much harder uh, because subtracting feels like you're shedding part of who you once were, which is really, really difficult to do, even though the part you're shedding is like no longer it no longer belongs to you. It's still really, really difficult. I think my my most recent uh, death, my most recent shedding happened when I decided to leave academia. So I, I was a rocket scientist before and then became a law professor. And I was a law professor for, for 10 years. Um, and there was a moment shortly after I got tenure that I realized that this life was no longer for me. Um, and I, it was this like feeling of every time I got up, in front of the classroom to speak before, I would feel energized and I would feel like so delighted to be there. And there was this really distinct moment. I remember walking into my constitutional law class and my whole body just sank with this feeling of like, ah, not again. Like I'm about to teach the same class again for, you know, God knows how many times. And, and so that 
I leaned into that voice and began to explore it more. And then I, I eventually went on this journey that lasted for two to three years, but I, I decided to leave a tenured position in academia to write books and, and speak full time. And it was, it was really, really difficult to do because, you know, I had professor in front of my name for 10 years. And so when I decided to leave, or I even thought about leaving my ego was kicking and screaming and saying, wait a minute, like, what are you, what are you going to be? What are you going to do? But more importantly, who are you going to be? That professor title was so ingrained into my identity that it, it was really, really difficult to shed it. But on a, it was it was the best decision I've made in, in recent memory because it allowed me creative freedom to write Awaken Your Genius and 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 now, you know, to go on a book tour and, and give the the types of keynotes that I give to to audiences. But it can be really difficult to do, but it's honestly uh, really, really rewarding as well. Yeah, I was thinking in the back of my mind, I didn't know you were, I knew you were a law professor. I didn't know for 10 years. And I immediately started thinking, oh gosh, he probably had tenure, which makes it doubly hard <laughs> to walk away from, right? Yeah, exactly. Because it's this, you know, it's people that talk about a safety net. It's the ultimate safety net. Uh, you've got a guaranteed position and a guaranteed paycheck for life. But again, I had this epiphany of the safety net had actually became, it actually become a straitjacket. And it was holding me back because my academic commitments were just depleting my creative time and energy. I was spending a year of my life writing academic articles that, you know, only 20 people would read. Um, and so a career that I once absolutely loved had turned into a straitjacket and I had to let that part of me die so that this new part that was awakening could fully become alive. Yeah, it couldn't be more timely in our profession, and particularly in dentistry and orthodontics. There's a lot of private equity investment. A lot of doctors are selling their practices or joining groups. And, and the biggest fear is, you know, you know, I've done this thing for 30 years. Mm -hmm. What's next? Well, I, you know, and I was like, well, you could teach or you could start another business or you could work for the company you sold to. And it's this fear of it's that tenured safety net that then really becomes restricting because there's so much more when you start to peel back the onion, so to speak, that they love doing. And they've just been, I think, afraid to try because, well, I'm a, and then insert the name of the profession you are. I'm a doctor. I'm a dentist. That's who I am. It becomes your identity. It's really scary, right? I feel like, um, as you yeah. mentioned, it could really, it could really prevent you from doing some other amazing stuff. Absolutely. And I'll, I'll say two things about that. Uh, number one is, Part of the reason we're afraid of letting go is because of the sunk cost fallacy, right? You know, we, we think, well, we invested all of the, this time to go into dental school and building our practice and economists call those sunk costs. But if you think about it, they're actually not costs. They are gifts. They are gifts from your former self to your current self. And you can take everything you learned in dental school. You can take everything you learned in, in building a successful practice and apply them to the next thing. Um, and, and that's sort of what I did was like, as I thought about leaving and, and trying to figure out what I'm going to do next, I basically just use my past as fertilizer, as like a compost pile for my future. Like I thought about, okay, I've got this career. I had this career in rocket science before I went to law school. That gave me um, fodder for critical thinking informed the, the subject matter from my last book, Think Like a Rocket Scientist. A decade in, in academia, teaching to students, and many of them did not want to be in the room because I was teaching these required classes, <laughs> gave, me, gave me skills to captivate audiences in, in a way that I didn't know how to. And then a decade of writing also gave me the, the, the value and the skill for storytelling. And so I took those core components to reimagine myself and figure out what my what my next step was going to be, and and I love the word you mentioned, Dustin, which is the word try. Uh, that's such an important one. You don't have to like permanently pick something and and quick call turkey and and go, go do that other thing. Experimenting with potential futures is is so so important. So when I was still in academia, you know, when I made the decision to leave, but I hadn't left yet. I spent a few years experimenting with potential futures. I was like, you know, I, I thought about doing and I actually tried. I tried all of these. I tried coaching, uh, which I did not love. I tried consulting, which I also did not love. 
Uh, I tried writing and podcasting, which brought me alive. And then over time, an audience for what I was writing and what I was speaking about emerged. And so as that intersection of what was bringing me alive and what was bringing a sizable audience alive, that Venn diagram, uh, the intersection there became clear to me. And, you know, my last book did well. It gave me confidence to walk down that particular path. But that wasn't the first path I had tried. It was like the third or fourth one. And I settled on it because I took the time to experiment with potential futures and see which ones had promise and see which ones brought me joy and delight. Wow. I hope everyone goes like, just go back 30, 30 seconds to a minute and re-listen to that because I think there's so much misinformation out there about just manifest your dreams and do this one thing and it'll happen. And you just heard from someone extremely successful that it wasn't first, second, it was third or fourth, right? It was, it was not this straight path to success. It was embracing a lot of different poss- possibilities, but I think you cover really well in the second part of the book, which is called The Birth. Mm-hmm. And I want I want to dig into that because sure. you're, I think you're honest in that so many other leaders in this space don't talk about how how hard it is. It's it's more complex, right, to embrace your multitudes. Absolutely, and um, and for a number of reasons. One is we already talked about the the the, the ego part, uh, but I want to dig into it a little bit more about how hard this can be, which is. So when I left academia, uh, it it's it's a really humbling process because number one, on the one end, you have creative freedom now to do whatever you want, right? I can I could do I can walk in whatever direction I wanted to walk, but it's also really humbling uh, in the sense that I went from being an expert and a really well known scholar in my field to being a nobody, to just being a completely unknown person. Who was blogging about, you know, reimagining the status quo and thinking differently. And I had zero credibility in that space, which again, the benefit being it gave me creative freedom to just write on a blank slate and do what I wanted. But it was also really hard in the sense of like my ego took a huge hit. And then you have to build your credibility back up in that space, which took a little while. Um, but I think it, it, that that process of birth, giving back birth to your your new self, is also just extremely rewarding because you're bringing yourself into alignment with who you are in this moment in time, regardless of what you did five years ago or or ten years ago. And, and I think the experimentation mindset for me makes it a lot easier because I am not committing myself to one particular path. Instead, I'm just trying out different futures, sort of putting on different suits and trying to figure out which one uh, which one fits me best. And, uh, and that way of thinking, seeing it as an experiment, makes it a lot easier for that birth process to happen. Because look, even if something doesn't work out, you're going to learn something from it. And you know, I've had so many failures in my life, uh, but I haven't had a single failure that didn't lead to some important learning. And so I could take what I learned from a failed experiment and then apply it to, to the next thing. Um, and then for those who are listening... Just keep in mind, this is partially why it becomes hard to implement these transitions is when you look around you, you are seeing a very curated portrayal, a very perfect portrayal of where people's lives are at. Um, And so, you know, when I look at, for example, as I was starting out and looking at the like the authors and the thought leaders that I admired. It was really daunting because I was comparing my beginning to their end. <laughs> they've been you know, they've been doing this for 10 years. And then you look and you look at the gap and you're like, oh my God, I can never get there. But you don't think that, like, look, it took them 10 years to get yeah. to where they are. Right. <laughs> and and so knowing that, I think becomes it makes it a little bit easier to get started. And and I sometimes go back and um and look at like the early blog posts that I wrote. Or someone said, I don't know how this came up. I don't remember it. But I, I saw the um, the very first version of my website that I published back in like 2017. Oh, wow. And it was awful. I mean, it, like, it made me cringe. The messaging was so bad. The layout was horrible. But I, I look back at that and said, oh, God. And I actually shared this in a blog post a while back of like, look at this. Like this should be, this is what you should be comparing yourself against 
this is where I began, not the version where I am right now or not the version of an author that I admire is because there is just a gap. And the gap comes from the fact that they started before you did. So, of course, they're going to be ahead of you. Yeah, that's amazing. That's very intellectually honest of you to, to go back and pose that. <laughs> My hat's off to you. We do that, right? You go like, so someone in this space might go to like Brene, Brene Brown's website, right? Or Stephen Covey and like, no, like almost all of them pitched their first book idea to like, you know, 50 publishers and were told no. And, you know, and they scraped it together and, and got better as they went. That's a, a really neat part of the book. I'm maybe skipping around a lot, but I love that you say, hey, you don't have to like figure out your path before you start walking. Right. right. Let's talk about that. You can, you can start walking and you can like adapt, right? Exactly. And I love this quote from Rumi. He says something like, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he says, as you start to walk on the way, the way appears. The implication yeah. being that the way, the path will not appear until you actually start walking. Uh, and, and so much of us, so many of us wait for perfect information uh, about you know this precise destination. Not only are we picking the precise destination, but we also want to know all the twists, all the turns that are going to take to get there. Uh, and then we wait for that information to emerge. And of course, that information never emerges, which means the status quo sticks, which means we just never move. We stand still. And you know the interesting thing about life is that it lights the path ahead only a few steps at a time. There is no flashlight powerful enough to illuminate what's to come. As you walk, as you take each step, you go from not knowing to knowing and from darkness to light. And if you think about it, like life wouldn't be as much fun if you knew exactly what was going to happen. Um, it's like watching a thriller, knowing exactly how it's going to end or like watching a, a football game, knowing who's going to win. But when it comes to our life, we want like a just a line by line script, a playbook, like exactly what's going to come next. But if you knew what came next, it would disrupt what's unfolding and you wouldn't learn the lessons that that you need to learn. People are in a rush to get clarity and figure everything out, but everything all figured out is the end. Like, yep. That's when the credits roll. The, the, movie, <laughs> the movie of your life is still unfolding. You're still in the middle of the action. And so not knowing what's going to happen next is I see it as like part of the fun and thrill of life. It just makes life more interesting. And then that way, if you keep an open mind too, if you're not so stuck on one particular path or one particular destination, you can be more open-minded about what life is presenting to you on a day-by-day -day basis. Yeah, it's so powerful. Your first book really opened my eyes to these biases and you know, recency bias and, you know, sunk costs and status quo. But just this idea that, you know, from today forward, everything's going to work, even though we've got so much evidence in our past that a lot of stuff didn't work. You know, <laughs> but yeah. like from today forward, if someone said, they're like, dude, if you, if you could see everything's going to happen in your life, you probably wouldn't get out of bed because there's going to be some heartbreak. There's going to be some setbacks and, <laughs> you know, it'd be depressing. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Anyways, I, I, I love both of your books. They're, they're truly, truly, truly fantastic. You teach something in the book that I think a lot of listeners might be skeptical about. And that is this idea that we can actually learn to be creative. You know, I see a lot of people say things or I hear them say like, well, I'm just not that creative or, or she's more creative than me. Why don't you ask her if she wants to help with that project? What do you have to say to people that are kind of approaching creativity the wrong way? Sure. And, um, and by the way, we're all born creative. I think the, the myth of like the not the non-creative person, I'm not a creative person is just a myth. There's a story I tell in the book of uh, Gordon McKenzie, who was a longtime artist at Hallmark. He would walk into different classrooms, like made up of students of different ages. Uh, he'd walk into a kindergarten class and he would ask the room, how many of you are artists? And everyone would raise their Everyone's hands. hand. Goes Everyone's up. hands go up immediately. <laughs> and then you get to, he did the same thing in a second grade class. And it's like, you know, maybe five to 10 hands would go up. And by the fifth grade, only one or two people would admit to such deviant behavior as as being an artist. <laughs> <And> an artist. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, um, so in, in many ways, unfortunately, the way that the education system is structured, students are are they unlearn how to make art, they unlearn how to become creative, they are conditioned to learn someone else, memorize, not just learn, but memorize someone else's answers to someone else's questions. And so 
that inherent creativity that we're all born with is unfortunately destroyed in many ways as we go through life. And, and art being creative isn't just something that poorly compensated artists do inside of a dark studio somewhere. You know, everything we do in life, as long as we're reimagining the status quo, as long as we are disturbing the peace in James Baldwin's memorable phrase, anything you do in life can be art. You know, the, the, the strategy that you design at work can be art. The way you raise your children can be art. The way you walk, the way you talk, the way you smile, it's all art. And if we refuse to think of ourselves as creative people, as artists, I think we're going to be just out of touch with a rapidly evolving world that demands all of us to be creative and to see things differently than, than we've seen in the past. Like one of my pet peeves, and I see this all the time and it makes me cringe, whenever someone calls a piece of writing content hmm. or like calls themselves a content creator, yeah, a part of me dies inside because content is fungible. Content creators can be replaced. Like content, no, and, and by the way, no one wants to get up in the morning and read content over coffee. <laughs> co yeah, content to me is just this inherently boring piece of work <laughs> that, that you just produce on an assembly line, but art is different. And, and I think if you, and naming matters, by the way. So if you call yourself a content creator, or if you call your creations content, the results will end up reflecting that framing and naming. Uh, so it's so important for us to be careful about the words we're using. And so if, you're, if you call yourself a non-creative person, you're just going to reinforce that mindset. Uh, as the saying goes, argue for your limitations and you get to keep them. And, um, and just remember you were born creative and, and the challenge is like getting back in touch with that in a kindergartner who's still within you who would leap up from their seat to raise their hand when someone asked them, are you an artist? Yeah. I think so there's no Academy Award for content? Or you, what? <laughs> <laughs> the Oscar goes to <laughs> Right. <laughs> right. Um, I love that reminder. Cause yeah, how many how many kindergartners do you know who are overly concerned with their stock market portfolio, you know, balance and and uh, you know diversification of their of their assets, it's this it's this system, right? It's very much a ladder. And you say in the book, we shouldn't be thinking of it as a ladder. It should be more like a like a jungle gym or a playground. Right. Um, but I mean, we're taught to climb. I mean, literally, it's first grade to second grade to third grade to fourth. I just think that's such a powerful concept, and I love that you included it in the book. And um, Hallmark is near and dear to our hearts right here in Kansas City. So we're, mm. uh, we're, we're big fans. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, the fourth section of the book, I think is should be required reading for like every human being on the planet. I mean, it's really powerful. Um, you call it the out, outer journey. And I just want to, I'm just gonna let you explain in your own words, a little bit about the fourth section of the book. And I'm sure I'll have other questions. But I have, I love the whole book. But that that area really resonated with me. Sure. So yeah, so the, the previous part was called the inner journey, which is mining yourself for insights. The second part, or the next part, I should say, is called outer journey, which is when you go on this journey to obtain information from external sources. And some of the questions that I cover in that section focus on how do you determine what information is valuable and what is not? Um, yes. how, do you, how do you filter out misinformation or misleading information from the type of information that's actually going to be beneficial to you. And of course, that's a subject that that's so important these days, which just with just the proliferation of information sources out there, it becomes really hard to figure out what's going to be useful. And then the other thing I cover is, is about the importance of looking where others don't look. We live in this, you know, world of ads, algorithms and, and bestseller lists. And so when you're operating in that world, our intellectual vista narrows in many ways because we're just all of us are being exposed to the same sources of information and same types of information. And there's so much value to looking where other people are not looking because the best ideas often grow out of overlooked ideas and overlooked ideas don't make a grand appearance on the front page of the New York Times because otherwise they just they want to be overlooked. Right. And so. Looking past the 
the just the conventional common sources of information to to other types of overlooked information becomes a really really rich source of of fodder for generating amazing ideas now a quick word from our sponsor are you trying to increase your treatment plan close rates while also increasing revenue how can you do both for your dental practice without burning out an already burdened staff the answer remote dental monitoring you need a trusted hipaa compliant app that helps you and your staff work smarter not harder this needs to be an easy-to-use, easy-onboard app that your patients will find fun to use and will increase their engagement and success with aligners. You need the InHand Dental app. The InHand Dental app allows you to engage with your patients in real time, send individual and batched messages, and solve problems to increase compliance without using up chair time. The result? Happy patients, happy staff, and happy practices with more revenue and the ability to do more starts. With prices starting as low as $149 a month, it's perfect for a growing aligner business. Check us out and learn more at InHandDental.com. Plus, mention Burleson for a 20% off discount on your subscription when you contact us. That's InHandDental.com. And now, back to the program. Yeah, the kind of three red flags that I scribbled down in the margins of the book were if it's too new, it's too convenient, it's too popular, at least, I mean, I'm not saying you shouldn't read those things, but just be aware. So I I tested two friends, we had coffee, and I just interviewed a nutritionist on um, diet and exercise. And on her blog post, she had written an article about this great recovery drink for athletes. And I said, hey, do you guys hear about this? This is a really cool thing to drink after an exercise to recover. And they both say, yeah, bone broth. Right. And so like everyone, I said, did you, I said, where'd you say, so, Oh, it's like on my phone and my Apple news feed. I was like, did you click the article? They're like, no, nah, I just read the headline. Right? <laughs> that happens all the time. We're like, Oh yeah. Bone broth is a great recovery drink and happens to be probably based on some pretty smart people. It is, but that was just in the news cycle. And it's so funny because I've gone 43 years of my life without thinking about bone broth you know, as a, as a drink. And then all of a sudden in a matter of seven days, four people have <laughs> talked about it. Right. So if it's too new, too convenient, too popular, are there some things you do to curate your reading list or what sort of things you're consuming? Sure. Uh, but by the way, I love that example. Uh, you know, the, because the same break, once a story breaks, once a story becomes popular in one media outlet, it then becomes, it gets copied and pasted into other media outlets with a different headline. So you're sort of being exposed to, the same information from different sources. And when you see the same information being reflected in different sources, your confidence in its accuracy increases. And then you hear your friends talk about it too, because <laughs> they're reading the same stuff. Then your confidence goes through the roof, right? You, you yep. immediately go yep. to Whole Foods and buy just a whole cart of bone mm-hmm. broth, bone uh, which again, like I enjoy bone broth. Bone broth so that there's, <laughs> yeah, there's nothing wrong with bone broth, but, but it's just a... That, that that that's what ends up happening. Uh, yeah, I, I do a number of things. Uh, number one is, and and what you said is absolutely true. So this doesn't mean avoiding reading best-selling books or avoid reading, you know, or watching everything everywhere all at once, which just won the the best picture in the Oscars. Uh, it's it's more about being intentional about what you're consuming. And so one of the things I do, for example, one of my favorite pastimes is walking into a bookstore and skipping the bestseller section and going and just perusing the other shelves where non-bestsellers are displayed and particularly older books that have been forgotten, that have slipped outside of mainstream awareness and just sort of like picking randomly books from the shelves and just skimming through them. And if I see any one of them that piques my curiosity, then I'll end up buying the book. But I'm sort of letting like, instead of letting ads and algorithms dictate what I see, I am letting serendipity and curiosity uh, lead me to my to my next read, and so I've discovered just really interesting books through through that process of just taking you know a few steps and and becoming more intentional about what I what I choose from instead of letting algorithms choose for me. Um, the other thing I do, which goes back to the example you just shared, is actually going back and reading the original source. 
which most people don't do. I mean, they don't even read the actual source. They just like look at the headline. But there is so much value to be gained by reading the, the thing that the quote is coming from. Uh, and of course, you can't do this with every study. Like we're all busy people. You're not going to be able to read every scientific study that a newspaper article is based on. But doing it every now and then becomes a really eye-opening exercise. One of the, I mean, this is a really simple example, and this actually is easy to read. I, I, there's a section in the book called, you know, what you can learn from the world's most misunderstood poem. And it's Robert Frost's The Road Not Taken, which if you don't recognize the title, you probably know the, the stanza about like two roads diverge in the woods. And I took the one less traveled by and that has made all the difference. And I remember I was in a freshman year uh, in college writing class that was required. Everyone had to take it. And, uh, and I, there was like something that happened in class. I don't remember what, but I, I like made a wise remark and I quoted from the book or from the poem about the importance of taking the road not taken. And the professor very gently said, have you actually read the poem? And I was like, no, I haven't read the poem, but the line is what it is. And he yeah. said, go back, go back and read the poem. Uh, I went back and read the poem and I encourage everyone listening to this, just pull up, pull up the poem after the interview is done on your phones and, and read it. The, the poem, if you read the earlier stanzas, Robert Frost makes it clear that the speaker in the poem is actually delusional. Both roads were the same. Uh, in one part of the poem, he says like both, both roads had been equally uh, traveled and the leaves looked the same and this, the, the traveler's hindsight remark that he took the road less traveled by is actually self-delusion. Mm. And so a poem, ironically, that's about self-delusion has generated widespread delusion, which affected <laughs> me too, <laughs> about what the poem is actually about. Wow. And, so, and that's such a simple example, but there, there's so much value to, to going back every now and then for issues that you actually care about and pulling up the primary source Yes. And reading it because you'll be able to see things that, you know, the vast majority of people miss. Yeah, we did we, we play this exercise with my wife and she she's like this. Look, because we're into cold plunge, you know, and all sorts of like health things that are kind of pseudoscience. But I, my knees do feel great after hopping in a cold plunge. And she found this podcaster who's like, look, I mean, absolutely. Cold plunge seems to help men. Does it help women as much as men? I said, all right, well, let's go like let's go look up. The artist said, look, well, look, he, he listed the PubMed identifier here. I was like, cool, let's let's put it into PubMed. And we pull it up, and it's uh, it's like some small Eastern European country's military, and it was a study of like 25 people that were enrolled, enlisted mm. in the military. And I'm going like, okay, this is a very small sample size. And I'm looking at the p-values. They're like, nothing's less than like 0.05. And, but the podcasters are like, I, I, have, I have high confidence in this study. And you, we all just take it for granted because, like, well, there, there's the reference. I guess he's brave enough to list the research. And you go click on it and you realize this just total junk research and a, and a journal no one's ever heard of. And anyways, it's bit, you know kind of a common, I think, for us to, as you mentioned, delude ourselves about what we think something is. Um, I love books like yours. I have a ton of references and, and things you can go actually look up. And, and it's not just anecdote and stories, but um, it's kind of everywhere, right? Getting back to your point of our copy and paste society, you know, I'm curious your thoughts on chat GPT and on where, where you see content creation and where do you see news cycle, you know, where's that going to be in 20 years if everything we're reading is kind of taken for granted as uh, potentially either written by AI or got the most clicks from an algorithm? Sure. Uh, that. Part, that scare is a part of me, um, for sure. If people are outsourcing their creativity to ChatGPT, I think that's a significant problem. On the other hand, part of me thinks people probably thought the same thing when like the calculator first came out uh, yeah. or like when Google first came out, that this was going to be this, this tool that completely destroyed your ability to do math or completely destroyed your ability to research. And it certainly can do that, by the way. It definitely can do that. But it's just a tool. So if you're using the tool and the tool isn't using you, like if you're owning the tool and the, tone, the tool isn't owning you, I think there's a way to use the tool to serve creativity versus have it destroy your creative powers. And I am concerned because I think most people are 
unfortunately not using some of these tools to actually serve their creativity. Instead, they're completely outsourcing their critical thinking and their creativity to these tools. But they exist and they're not going to go away. So I am concerned that like colleges are banning, for example, ChatGPT because it's going to exist when people graduate. And so we're better off teaching people the limitations of these tools versus just completely prohibiting them altogether uh, and teaching people to actually use them as a tool yep. that will help their creativity versus hinder it. Yeah. If you're listening, you're still kind of in the academic world. Uh, I teach part-time. So if you're listening and you want a great resource, uh, Harvard Business School has has shared their stance, for lack of a better word, basically their, their uh, intellectual honesty policy for students. And they're saying, listen, we encourage you. Actually, it's going to be a requirement as a part of this class to use chat, chat GPT. Mm. We simply want to know uh, what you you know, what you used it, how, how did you query it? What did you type in? What questions did you ask it? And then we want you to then go not just take those answers for granted, but to go look them up and see if you can actually, you know, confirm uh, the research that either would uh, support or deny those uh, answers you get back from ChatGPT because some, some of the answers are not right. So but it was a really neat kind of eight-step kind of uh, protocol uh, at Harvard Business School for using ChatGPT in their classes. So I thought I, I love that because there are so many universities, particularly in the Midwest, like, well, we're just going to ban it. And I'm like, yeah, we'll see. You know, they tried that, you know, with the printing press. That didn't work so well. So right. uh, <laughs> <laughs> I do think I'll, I'll include in the show notes that link through the Institute of Coaching. I think there's a pretty good resource if you're if you're teaching dentistry orthodontics and you are concerned about, particularly in my final exam for practice management, we ran my questions through chat GPT and it absolutely passed with a solid B plus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's an essay, you know, essay exam. <laughs> so it's pretty, pretty frightening. Right. So uh, anyways, I'll include a show note on that. Uh, we'll get back to the point here. Uh, I, I love the last section of the, I love the whole book, but the last section is called the transformation. Mm-hmm. And I think you dispel some myths. And one of those I mentioned earlier was seeing life uh, more like a jungle gym, I think you call it, or right. less like a, a ladder. ladder. Yeah. yeah. Can you talk about uh, that section and maybe some some takeaways that you've seen in your own life or, or previously when you were doing coaching consulting or maybe even way back when you were when you were teaching? Sure. I, I think, you know, the, the jungle gym analogy, it harkens back to something we already talked about, which is that the life is just not linear. You know, when you're proceeding from first grade to the second grade and you're moving from uh, step one to step two, it just ends up being more like a jungle gym. Uh, it's a jungle gym in the sense that it's not linear, but it's also a jungle gym in the sense that you can see it as a playground and an experiment with different ways of being and, and different futures and, and uh, different ways to use your skill set. And that's one of the things that we didn't, talk about. Uh, It doesn't appear in that part, but it came up, so I'm going to mention it. I think one of the things that really useful exercises uh, that I do is looking back on your life and trying to figure out what your useful idiosyncrasies are. And this is a good segue from the ChatGPT conversation too. One of the things that became even more important now with the rise of ChatGPT and will continue to become more important is authenticity, our own stories, our own idiosyncrasies cannot be replicated by ChatGPT. And so that I think leaning into your idiosyncrasies is going to become even more important. So I'll give you an example from my life. And so you can ask yourself, like, there's a number of questions that I cover in the book, but this is one of them. What is one of your superpowers? Uh, Like if you ask your best friend or partner, what would they say that you can do better than the average person. And for me, and the goal of the exercise is to identify your Lego blocks, like the, your talents, interests, and preferences, your first principles as a person. And once you identify them, you can use those Lego blocks to build different things. So one of my Lego blocks is storytelling. And if I look back over the course of my life, beginning from a very young age, when I first learned to read and write, I would type stories on my grandfather's old typewriter. Like I would sit down and like write screenplays. I had started a magazine that only my parents would read. But that that inherent writing, uh, storytelling was there from the very, very beginning. And then I carried that on with me when I went to law school and became a lawyer. You're essentially telling 
stories on behalf of your clients. In academia, storytelling manifested itself when I was teaching because we're all story storytelling creatures in many ways, and people love stories, and that was a great way to engage students. And then I brought that in again when I started writing books for uh, for general audiences. And so, what I did with the skill changed over time. I was using it in different ways, but that was one constant thing across the course of my life that stayed the same. So even as I was in this jungle gym, jumping from one place to the other, some of those core Lego blocks, some of those core themes stayed constant across, and then I could use them to reimagine myself and and try out different things where I was using the same ingredients, but creating a different dish. So I I encourage everyone to do that. Um, And on, on the point of useful idiosyncrasies, this is another example on point. I, I recently went to a uh, my first Bruce Springsteen concert, and I was blown away. Like, here's this 73-year-old guy. He is jumping and dancing and sliding across stage, pulling off moves that would put people in their 30s to shame. <laughs> and he, he played for two and a half hours nonstop, almost three hours, like seamlessly transitioning from one song to the other with little break in between. And as I listened to him and just watched him in amazement, I thought to myself or thought about what makes him extraordinary. It's not his voice. Like his voice is not amazing. And he readily admits that. Uh, He can play the guitar, but he writes in his memoir, Born to Run, which is an excellent book, by the way. He writes in his memoir that he's like, yeah, I can play the guitar, but the world is filled with other guitar players who are my match or, or much better than me. And so instead of trying to outsing or outplay other musicians, he leaned into one of his Lego blocks, uh, one of his useful idiosyncrasies, which was his ability to write song lyrics. So he became a sensation for writing lyrics that capture the blue collar spirits that like show the distance between the American dream and the American reality. People saw pieces of, of themselves in the lyrics that Bruce Springsteen wrote and the same guy who was initially dismissed by agents and bandmates and critics, just about everyone, eventually became a rock and roll sensation for leaning into the one quality, the one Lego block that made him different from other people. Uh, And it's really hard to do in part because our idiosyncrasies make us different from other people. And, And so you're listening to this and you're thinking back about you know, about your life and your your idiosyncrasies, what made you different. At one point or another, you were probably shamed by someone for having that idiosyncrasy, for being different or weird in some fashion. So we learn to suppress them. But there is so much value in now, uh, you know, you've grown up and um, you can go back and tap into what made you weird, what made you different, what you were shamed about before and use them as, as inspiration for what you do now. Uh, you know, the, the types of games that you choose to play in the jungle gym, because what made you weird or different at one point can make you extraordinary now as an adult. I love that. I love that. I didn't know you were hammering out uh, magazines and uh, <laughs> screenplays and stories on a typewriter as a kid. What a great, looking back, right? makes perfect sense now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And so you, you have to look back and, and, and there's this quote in the book from um, Anthony Gaudi, the great Catalan architect. And he says, originality consists of returning to the origin. Uh, so thinking back to when you were growing up, like before the world told you who you should be, who you should listen to, what you should do with your life, what were you inherently curious about and interested in? Uh, and there's so much value to reconnecting with your own origin story and, uh, and using it as inspiration for what you do now. Yeah. I'm for people listening. They've heard my story. We, in eighth grade, we were doing problem-based learning on, uh, educational models and, and I sat down with the art teacher and said, like, I could probably build you guys a new website. And he's like, really? You know, HTML? So I built, and then we built the school district website. Then we started mm-hmm. editing videos. So I was always in, like, content creations. And there's no shock that, you know, we run a basically a media company at Burleson Seminars helping doctors publish books and, and get on the news. And, you know, we do national print media. And it's like, looking back, it's like, yeah, I like teeth. But also, that's been with me since I was in eighth grade, you know. And it was definitely an idiosyncrasy, like, 
Wait, Dustin owns a, we had a wedding video, a production company. We had a graphic design company. <laughs> like I was that weird kid in the art department commandeering all the computer power I could find to render out, you know, 3D titles for videos overnight, which, you know, you can now do on a, t- on a cell phone as a filter. Yeah. <laughs> so I love that. That's, that's so cool. And it, like, I was also into HTML programming in, in high school too, which again, a huge idiosyncrasy. I was the founder of my school's computer club which did not bode well for my dating life, but <laughs> <laughs> but definitely gave me uh, gave me skills that that became really important later on. Yeah, I remember talking to you know dentists and thinking I'm going to go into dentistry. And you're like, so how do you see computers fitting into like the future of dentistry? Because I was just a computer geek, and a lot of old school dentists were like, oh, I don't see computers ever being involved in dentistry. We got we got 3D. We're the biggest uh, the biggest user of 3D printing technology in the world is Clear Liners, which is Invisalign. They're you know twenty seven billion dollar company uh, is all computers. So um, interesting uh, interesting path. I love the book. I could talk to you all day about it. I know our time is limited. I want to make sure listeners get a chance to find you. And hopefully I can plug the playbook that I think when you buy the book or if you're in our paid program, you get the copy of the book that we're going to send to you. Uh, I believe they can register the book, right? And get the playbook, which is amazing. It's amazing. Oh, thank you for that. Yeah, there's a playbook that you can get if you you get the book and the links are inside the book itself. Uh, It's really a great companion with summaries from from each chapter and then additional you know exercises you can do and questions you can ask yourself. Um, yeah, so if you'd like to keep in touch with me, the best way to do that, I'm not active on social media. The best way to do that is through my email list. And uh, speaking of tech, you can now sign up for my email list by texting my first name, which is Ozan, O-Z-A-N, to 55444. You can also go over to my website, which is ozanmorol.com, O-Z-A-N-V as a Victor, A-R-O-L.com. And um, if you're listening to this, I'm also happy to share with you a special bonus for getting the book. And uh, you can find that at geniusbook.net. It's a mini video course that I put together made up of 10 life-changing insights from Awaken Your Genius, similar to the ones you listened to today that you can watch in just 30 minutes over lunch um, just to get people started. And yeah, you can find that at geniusbook.net. Ozan, thank you so much for being here. The book's fantastic. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Likewise, Ozan. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Burleson Box. We're so honored to have you here. If you want to learn more about a Burleson Box subscription, go to theburlesonbox.com where you can get hand-edited transcripts, study notes and study guides for your employees, PowerPoint presentations, live trainings and group sessions about the books, a whole lot of great stuff we think will help you and your practice lead with excellence. Until next time, remember the words of Bruce Springsteen who said, quote, a good song takes on more meaning as the years pass by, end quote. I think Bruce would agree, good books take on more meaning as the years pass by, too. Until next time, take care, be well. We'll see you right here next time inside another episode of The Burleson Box. When's the last time you evaluated your credit card processing statement? Our partners at Stacks are offering a free savings analysis for our listeners, where they will actually take your merchant statement with your current processor and show you where you're overpaying. Stacks has saved orthodontics practices over 40% per month on payment processing costs. So don't wait. Get your free savings analysis today and see how much you're overpaying for your credit card processing. Go to StacksPayments.com forward slash Burleson dash seminars to schedule your savings analysis today. Plus, as a special offer for our podcast listeners, if you sign up today, you can get your first two months of payments processing costs waived from Stacks. Once again, that's StacksPayments.com forward slash Burleson dash seminars. Stop overpaying. Start saving.